Proctor here with a quick announcement before we get into this episode. Bruce Tate's new book, Seven More Languages in Seven Weeks, has been sent to the printers. It has been updated to include Elixir 1.0 and the latest available version of Elm. If you enjoyed episode 15 and are curious about the seven more languages mentioned, now is the time to get it. Welcome to the 18th episode of Functional Geekery. I am your host, Proctor, and this week with us we have Eric Normand. Eric, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? My name is Eric Normand. I live in New Orleans. I'm a software engineer, and I also write Closure Gazette, and I do the Lispcast videos. I've known you from your Lispcast blog and some of your Lispcast videos. Just for some background, how did you get into Closure? Oh, uh, man, I got into Closure because I was into Lisp. I've been into Lisp since like 2000, 2001. And I went to the Lisp 50. This was back when Lisp was still like very fringe. And the Lisp 50 was the 50th anniversary, 50th anniversary of the publication of the paper that introduced Lisp. And so there was kind of a panel on the future of Lisp. And Rich Hickey was there and he gave a talk and he presented Closure and what was different about it from Common Lisp and Scheme. And it was intriguing. I was a little skeptical, but I went home and I tried it and just started getting into it and I never looked back. So that's how I got into Closure. That was back in 2008. And you did have Lisp experience before that, right? When you were going to the Lisp 50 and everything? Yeah. So I use Lisp. I like, you know, wrote my own Lisp because I heard you could do it in a weekend and I wanted to have my own language. I used Common Lisp. I actually had like a little startup, lasted a couple of months, and I, I wrote a web server in Lisp. I did all my school projects in Lisp once I learned about it in university. Yeah, so I've been using it for a while. So you seem to have gotten into the functional programming pretty early on if you started doing college projects. Yeah, and it wasn't even the functional programming that got me started. It was mostly that it was a better option than Java. And even Python was kind of obscure back in those days. And so I used Python too, but I just really liked the Lisp abstraction, you know, the list, the cons cell that you use everywhere. And so your functions can kind of tag team on the same data structure. And it just gives you a lot of power. And then what happens in Clojure is you actually have more data structures. And instead of a list that's a data structure, you have the seek abstraction that gives you that same power, but over multiple different data structures. I feel like it's a much more modern approach to that same problem. Because as I said, I found you via your Lispcast blog, which you seem to do a pretty good job of regularly pushing out content. Because subscribing to Planet Closure, and stumbling across that when I started looking at Closure, the Lispcast blog was one that came across frequently and was very helpful when I was getting into closure and finding resources. Well, I'm glad. I feel like I'm kind of uh, not doing such a good job at that. And it's because of my perspective. I feel like I'm more experienced and I didn't really share my whole learning process on a blog. And so, you know, it's still early days in closure, but I feel like the closure blog space is lacking in a lot of those beginner things, like someone exploring. This is how you merge two maps. Because, I mean, I know how to do that. I've done it hundreds of times. But I can imagine a beginner doesn't know that there's this huge core library out there that they could just 
find it if there was somebody at the top of the Google search results. So actually, to come back to like planet closure and stuff, one of my goals is to start kind of just dumping everything I know into my blog and just having small bite size. Oh, here's how you solve this problem. Here's how you solve that problem. Because I don't know if no one else is doing it. I guess I have to do it. Yeah, it's one of those things I've I've kind of noticed myself just with me growing as well in my knowledge of different languages is we start to make assumptions about, oh, here's what we know from the perspective of knowing it now versus, sure. as you said, merging two maps is something that's obvious when you know it, but when you yeah. don't know it, you don't realize it's there. Oh, yeah. And it's one of those great sources of fresh content that seems like it should be easy to produce pretty quickly. But I mean, I'm going to give away a whole bunch of secrets here because I'd love for other people to take on this kind of task. But if you're looking for content, just go through the standard library alphabetically for each function and write a post about it. Just link back to the official documentation and just write a post about the function vector that is a variable number of arguments and creates a vector. Just write a little post about it in like three or four different ways of using it. And that's so much content right there. You could fill a whole year with that and fill up your blog, get some hits, get some Google juice, help some people out. Yeah, that sounds like a really great tip that seems obvious once you say it, but it's one of those, even giving away your secrets, hopefully this audience is a lot wider than just the closure. So yeah, if we have people going Scala and Haskell and Erlang and Elixir and Elm and any of these other number of languages... That seems like it would help the whole functional community as a whole and being able to just produce massive amounts of content in a relatively shorter time frame than what might normally take. Sure. I mean, I think, like I was saying before, I don't know if I made this point very clearly, but I often, because of my perspective, I have trouble figuring out what I should write about because I want it to be smart and insightful and all these things that are about me, right? But really, it should be about the audience and what they need. And what they need is obvious because it's not there. They just need people talking about the basics, right? I go through every now and then and I'll just like randomly flip through the Closure Core documentation because there's still stuff I don't know in there. There's still stuff that I don't use often enough to use all the time, even though I should. Like the function juxt. I didn't know that was there for years and it's been there a long time. And then at some point I started seeing it everywhere. I was like, what is this function? Why are people using it all the time? And I started using it and then, you know, you forget about it. And then it goes away from your own code base and you stop seeing it. And then you see it again, like, oh, I should be using that. That would be perfect right here. I wrote my own custom thing. So it's a good practice for yourself. And it's a good practice to get that stuff out there for other people. Part of what I really appreciate about blogs, I mean, especially when they were first starting, was it started to get to, you could just type in an English description of that problem and it would come up in Google, somebody's blog post on it. I mean, I don't know Bash, the shell scripting language, but I can solve any problem just by typing it into Google and like someone has written a close enough Bash script that I can cannibalize it. I love that. I think that's great. So we just need more of that with these more obscure languages. That's a really good advice for people, no matter what your expertise is, because as you said, there's always stuff that you forget about or you don't even realize is there. And one of those refreshers 
But you're talking about taking on the perspective of the beginner and trying to figure out what the beginner's needs. Yeah. Which leads me into one of your other projects was, was it a year and a half ago, maybe? Maybe a little longer? You had a Kickstarter for some intro to closure videos. That's right. That actually were part of your ListCast stuff that you were promoting. And I believe you met all your backers. And because I got the videos because I backed it. So I'm thinking you had enough backers to actually meet that Kickstarter thing and release them. Sure. The Kickstarter was successful. I mean, it's all on the website. My goal was 3000 and I made a little over 4000 I don't remember the exact number, which was, you know, I was totally happy with that. And just some background. The reason I did a Kickstarter was I didn't want to start making these videos because they are time-consuming, etc. I didn't want to make them if I wasn't going to get enough customers, right? And so it was a way to test the market. So if I couldn't get $3,000, then I wasn't going to do them. And I'd be happy, right? I'd be happy. Okay, there's no market. I just won't do them. That was my test. What I didn't think about was that I didn't really want it to be at $3,000. I thought because I set the price at $5, I thought it would mean that I would have a certain number of backers and not a certain number of dollars. And so I was hoping for, oh, I can't remember now, what, 300 people backing. And it turned out that I, I'm not doing the math right, I'm sure. But I wanted a certain number, and it turned out to be way less than that because some people gave too much. I had a $5 level. That was it. Just one $5 level and a $500 level for like a corporate sponsor. At the $5 level, I was like, oh, well, if I get so many backers, then I'll hit the number, and I won't have to do the videos if they're lower than that. But some people were like, oh, I just want to see this happen. Here's $100. And so I was like, oh, no. It's cool that he's really excited about it, but that's 19 backers (laughs) extra that he's counting for. And he wouldn't buy 19 more videos. So it didn't answer the question I wanted to answer, which was, can I get X number of customers? Instead, I got another thing, which was a lot of people are excited about it. Not sure about the number of customers. That was the thing. It was still like, oh, it hasn't really answered the question. So it's still a big risk. It's still a risk to do these videos. So it sounded like you were trying to use it to essentially be like a lean pub approach of trying to just gauge interest. Yeah, trying to gauge interest. That was exactly right. Trying to see if I could multiply it out and say, well, if I could get so many people in 30 days, well, I'll be able to make a living at it or something like that. Yeah. Well, I mainly bring it up not about the Kickstarter point, but the fact that you actually started with the intro to closure uh-huh. videos uh-huh. instead of going off and saying, okay, here's some closure tips and tricks for the intermediate to advanced. You, right. start, it, you started out with the, here you go, let's start out with closure and assume you, right. don't, you don't know closure and I will help walk you through it. Right. And that's, I mean, that gets to the heart of my objectives with the business One thing is I really like teaching the basics a lot more. It's more satisfying to me to see someone who had no knowledge and maybe even no way of getting that knowledge now having the knowledge. Whereas a lot of the intermediate books, 
they assume so much knowledge. Like, yeah, you could have read a different book and gotten this same information, let's say. But with the intro ones, you're guiding someone through the whole issue with the syntax and the parentheses that they're not used to, a different kind of thinking with functional programming and the immutable data structures. I mean, it really is different from, say, JavaScript or Java. And I don't know, I really like that. I like breaking down the material into a step-by-step, learn this, then that'll let you get to this next level where you learn this and then get that ingrained and you can go to the next level. I really think that's missing in a lot of material, that teaching, right? People will write down what they know, but they don't actually take the time to put it into a form that's easily learned. Yeah, I thought that was really good just to be able to have that as a good resource for I had started to get into it, but it's one of those, again, reading the books, it's still in relatively the early days of learning. It's like every different perspective you can get gives you the potential for that many more insights because someone else thinks about it differently. So right, right. everybody's going to use different metaphors when trying to explain how the immutable data structures work. Uh-huh. And so you could have 10 different people explain it to you and you may not still get it until you get the 11th who happens to have the perfect metaphor that you understand based off your shared context. Right. And that's true too. I mean, that's actually really good advice to anyone out there who was thinking about writing a tutorial or something. The more the merrier because some people will prefer yours and some people will prefer another one. Some people want both. Don't say, oh, Kyle Kingsbury wrote this really great intro to closure. I shouldn't write one. No, you should write one too from your perspective. The stuff that you wish you had known going in. The stuff that you see other people struggling with when you teach them. All those things are really great. After that, you also did another one, which was the ring adapters and building a web server using closure, right? That's right. I called it web development in closure. And it's basically the stuff that I would assume that someone knows when they say I do web development and closure. So it's Ring. You pretty much have to know Ring. And the three concepts of adapters, middleware, and handlers, and how they all compose together. And then you have Composure, which does your routing, and Hiccup, which renders your HTML. So those are the three main things that you learn in those videos how to put them all together and make a web server. I believe you've got a few more videos out. Do you have another set out or are they coming soon? Core Async, by the time this podcast is published, my videos should be out. It's a Core Async videos, more business side of it, because I think that's interesting. It's interesting to me when I listen. So I did the intro. Like I said, I like teaching the basics, but also it works out well because at least in theory, The intro market is always bigger than the people who already know the content. So that was my idea there, help bring people from outside into the Clojure community. And then I did web development because I felt like it was kind of an obvious series that needed to happen. And then I I, I wasn't expecting very much, but it sold so much better than the intro. And it could just be because of my reach, you know, because people who listen to me already know closure so they obviously are the ones who are there but it made me think that maybe there was a market for intermediate material for people who already know closure that led me to think of the opposite extreme from intro which was a one i would call core async kind of an advanced library 
not that it's hard to use, but that it's new and it's not something that everybody is going to be using already. So yeah, Core Async teaches the fundamental concepts of Core Async, breaks it all down into bite-sized chunks with exercises that help you train yourself to just type it and think in that way automatically without having to use too much of your forebrain. You should be thinking about the problem, not about core acing. So we go through a whole process where you're, I like to have stories in my videos. So you're helping a toy factory make more toy cars and you're helping them make their process more concurrent. They only have one worker, they need to hire more but they don't know how to get them to work together. So you're helping them by using core async. You're learning the concepts as you need them. And by the end, you should have everything you need to go further, to start reading the documentation. You'll understand the main concepts. So the main concepts in core async are go blocks, channels, timeouts, and then what's called alts, which lets you select off of multiple channels, put and take, those basic operations. So you learn all that and core async is nice because it has a small core set of concepts that everything else builds on. So once you learn those concepts, you can go and read the documentation, read a blog post about what someone has done with core async, and you'll be in. You're now a core async programmer. And is that just core async as the language features, or is that core async and the philosophy of concurrency and closure? It does talk quite a bit. I don't know if I'd call it philosophy but it's the practical side of using core async, not just, you could read a bunch of blog posts that say, oh, this is how you do a put, this is how you do a take. But in these videos, it talks more about how you analyze your problem so that you know where to put your concurrency, you know how to break it down into different processes and when and how they should communicate. You've got your channels and you've got buffered channels. Well, what kind of buffer do you want? Well, how can you tell? You know, core async, it's not deadlock free. You can create deadlock situations. So how do you detect those and how do you mitigate against them? So all those things are in there. So it's not just like a technical reference manual. This is how you do a put. This is how you do a take. It's practical. And I think you covered what I was implying by philosophy. More about the, how do you think about concurrency being that you're in Clojure versus how do you think about concurrency if you were in Haskell or how do you uh, think about concurrency if you're in Erlang and kind of model that problem set? And it sounds like you are covering that aspect where it's like, look, here's how you get your appropriate granularity and when you might right. want to be concurrent versus do all these things sequentially, yeah. sequentially together yeah, and possibly yeah. think about Amdahl's law, which if I think, I think that's the right name of it, which is the, you get blocked by the slowest part of your system at that sure. point. So Sure, right. And you have some external systems that you can't change. And so you have to deal with those properties. And there's also a little bit of, there's some struggle when you go from a sequential program into a concurrent program. You've made some assumptions when you write that sequential program that now are no longer good assumptions. And so, yeah, there's all sorts of, I don't want to call it discussion. They're all presented as practical problems in the factory. So we work through them. We just work through them. We don't discuss. It sounded, because I'd seen some teasers of it again, uh -huh. having some things at the bottom of your blog post right. with the different things where you say, coming soon, 
a new series. And by soon, I mean uh, <laughs> someday. <laughs> they took a long time to come out, much longer than I thought. I actually started working on, this is my third set of videos, back right after I released the web development videos. I released the web development ones right before Closure West in 2014. And then I went to Closure West and basically didn't work on them, but I started right after I got back. So that's been like seven or eight months. I mean, that's it's shameful how long it's taken me. That actually sounds pretty impressive by my standards, considering editing audio only and what it would have to take to edit audio and video and probably yeah. join audio and video together the way I hear most people do screencasts. Yeah, well, I um, I actually talking more about process i spent a lot of time while working on these videos trying to get the process better because i do want to make them faster i want to make more and that was one of the things was this animation this screencast format it just is so time consuming so i tried so many things like delegating it i researched animation studios and how much it costs it actually turns out to cost something like a thousand dollars per minute to do animations. Now, I think that they do much better animations than I would do and more complex animations, but it just goes to show that it's not something that I could even hire out to do. So that was a detour, trying to just storyboard it and send it to someone to do. That didn't work. So I wound up trying it myself and I bought some animation software that's used for cartoons and I started doing it and it's like, Two months later, I had like 10 seconds of animation. I was like, no, this isn't going to work either. You know, my vision was like, have this really great video with characters that have voices and all these things that you would kind of expect from a really high-end video. And it was just never going to happen. It was never going to finish it. So I just pulled everything back and started doing very basic animations, the kind of stuff you can do in Keynote. I just dissolve between two different hand positions. And it's still effective. It's certainly not as fun as having the seeing stuff walk around on the screen, which is what I wanted to have. Well, I was thinking just going back and having to re-record or re-edit things, especially when you've made... It sounds closer to what I hear about a books, is by the time you get to an idea, it's like, oh, we've got to completely rework this whole example again and start from the uh -huh. ground floor uh -huh. because yeah. we, need to, we need to throw this in, which means all that time recording or shooting video or whatever just... right has to be re-edited now because we've got this other feature. Right, and that contributes to the length of the time, certainly, that you've got to do all your prep work up front. You've got to write out all the code that you're ever going to type. Make sure it all works so you don't have any typos, that it actually does what you're expecting. Because, you know, you're typing and you try some code and, oh, that didn't work. Okay, go through all of it from the beginning to the end, record it all in a text document so you can refer to it later. And that's basically where I start. I might be writing down little ideas here and there for metaphors and imagery and stuff, but the backbone of the videos is the code that I want someone to be able to type at the end. And then you have to go through and break it all down. How did I choose this code? How did I know to use a Go block here? And how did I decide to break it up at this point into two Go blocks instead of having one big Go block? Those kinds of decisions are really hard to externalize, but that's exactly what you have to do as a teacher is figure out what concepts does someone need to be able to do this? What skills do they need? How do they know how to apply them? 
And so I start with that code, break it down. Sometimes you have to change the code. You're like, ah, this step is too big. I have to do three steps to get here. So maybe I'll write longer code and then I'll refactor it down to that, even though eventually they should be able to write that one directly. But it's just too many concepts at once. So it's this long process before you even start recording. I don't want to record anything until that's all done because I'm going to have to go back and re-record it anyway. So it's unfortunate because I'd like to do something where I could release one as I'm working on it. And by the time I get to the end, it's a whole series and it makes a lot of sense, but I don't know how to do that. Well, what's even more impressive to me is the fact that hearing from people how much video production takes, you're still able to put out other content as well. Because you've got your Closure Gazette and for the Closure Conj that will probably be happening around the time this comes out is you've also been doing posts at least weekly if not a little more often about <laughs> the pre-con stuff yeah the, yeah the pre-con stuff was every day every day was something i was about to say it seemed pretty often i i mean i'm so glad i did it but that was a rough i don't know three or four weeks of okay so what i did with the pre-con was my friend marcus suggested to me that He's going to the conj, but he's kind of new to closure. And so he's looking at the talk descriptions and he's like, I mean, I could start looking all this stuff up, but I just don't know where to start. And I don't think I'll finish by the time the conj comes around. And so he said, what if we had something that had a longer description with references to other things? I was like, oh, that's brilliant. So I just started working on it, knowing that it was a ton of work and it would also delay the videos. But I took each description and I wrote out an email explaining like what I could gather of the background of the talk. So, you know, I'm only guessing too what they're going to talk about from that description. And then I went in and I found videos or other posts about those topics that I thought would be useful in understanding the context. I always thought about Marcus as the perfect audience for this because he's a smart guy, he's into closure, he's learning it, but he hasn't followed the thread of closure since as far back as I have. I mean, I've watched every video from every closure conj, every closure west. I know the thread of conversation and I know how it's evolving and I know what's important to know to be able to understand where we're at now, which is where the talk is going to be and the trajectory that it's going in. Perfect example is I think it was a couple years ago, there was a talk that was called DSL Not Equal Macros. Because from Common Lisp, Clojure inherited this idea that you can write your own DSLs with macros. It's very powerful and it's a good practice. But in Clojure, because we have a wider variety of literal data structures, it's actually easier to do data-driven programming. And so Christoph Grand's talk, this is the DSL not equal macros, that kind of introduced this idea that only use macros if you have to. We should be doing DSLs in data structures because we have so many that usually you can fit it into the data structures. So now there's a talk at the conj that is sort of taking that to an extreme, which is saying you can define your whole system in data structures. And he's going to give an example of how that's done. But like that thread is kind of lost if you just read the abstract from the talk page, from the speaker's page. And so I try to give someone that. Like if you're interested in this idea, you just take a step back, watch this video from a few years ago, and you'll see that this is a point on the line that's going on. Okay, so I did all those, and there are 19 talks. 
And I wanted to make it even bigger. So I started asking all of the speakers if they wanted to do an interview. <laughs> so I was doing, um, not everybody said yes, but I was doing 15 or so interviews at the same time, which was kind of intense, but I got them all done and they're out there now. So if you want to sign up for it, it's on my blog. If you do lispcast.com slash preconj2014 with hyphens, pre-conj-2014, you'll get the page with a sign-up form. And, and if you sign up now, you'll get one a day, starting with the first one. You should do that if you want to get ready for the conj. I'll make sure to include that link in the show notes. Sure, thank you, yeah. It sounds really interesting, the perspective you're taking there, because this kind of goes back to the beginning with starting to document for beginners, but what you're documenting is not just the features of the language, but it sounds like you're also documenting the lore of the language. So it's like, you're, again, you're telling the story of closure in its history or sure. part of the history of closure instead of just the data about the closure of here's this function and what it does, but here's the story behind where we are now. Right, right. And that perspective is something that I've tried to cultivate, even in the Gazette. It sometimes happens because it's just through laziness. I'll write a Gazette issue that's basically, oh, here's some links I found today. This one is about this. This one is about that. But what I try to have is, I mean, there's obviously going to be multiple threads happening at the same time. But I try to give this sense of where the ideas in the blog post or video that I link to where they tie into the history that we've got behind us. I just think it's so important to have a sense of history. And we're not just web developers. And it's also like one of the things that makes Clojure so special is that it does have such an interesting history coming from Lisp. And it's got all these influences that post-date Lisp, which is a great thing. It's like, it's still a Lisp, but it's got influences from Haskell. It's got influences from Java got influences from all sorts of places. Why not give people a perspective when they're reading something? So I don't know. That ties back into the pre-conj, which is, yeah, closure is on a trajectory. And I mean, the interesting thing about closure's trajectory is it really does feel like it's still evolving. It's still making waves in the broader software engineering world, which is one of the things I'm really excited about with closure. I've said this before, I don't think Clojure is like the perfect language or the best language possible or anything like that. It's simply so fascinating to watch, I don't know, 30 years of software engineering and programming language theory bake into this language. I really appreciate that. That's one of the things that fascinated me about Clojure too that you mentioned is they've taken all these old ideas that people have forgotten about mm -hmm. and have brought them in and put new twists on them because it's now we've gotten a little bit with this influencer, a little bit, or we take these ideas. Right. Because we're so bad at, as an industry, about knowing our history. It's true. But Rich and the Closure Core seem to be able to pull out some of those gems of history and make them fresh. Definitely. Especially with things like Data Log, where it's like, what is Data Log? Oh, Data Log's been around forever, but you right. see Datomic, and it's like, oh, uh oh. <laughs> yeah, right. Definitely. I just, the coolest thing to me is that. I grew up with Java. It's taught in my university. And the thing about it was you always felt like, yeah, you could do this X, Y, Z in Java. But first of all, it's going to be just really hard. You're just going to have to start from scratch and do everything yourself. 
And then the next thing was that it's not going to be compatible with anything else, right? You can't just make something that can be consumed by another library, right? Or this other library you want to use, uh-oh, you have to make like an adapter just for that library, for everything that you've got in your library. And so it really was like Java's it. When I say Java's it, what I mean is so often for practical reasons, it is better just to make a for loop and loop through an array, right? When you look at the trade-offs that you're given, oh, I could implement data log in Java versus I could just hack a join in memory with a few arrays by hand. Well, I'll just hack it by hand instead of implement data log. But when you get into something higher level like closure, that data log thing looks like, wow, that's actually competitive with writing it myself, you know, making this more general solution. So I feel like it's something where because of the choices made to have immutable data structures by default and strong sense of abstraction, you know, the sequence abstraction, the associate abstraction, all those things, they let you think at a higher level and program something that from a high level description in a paper to the closure implementation, it's pretty short. I mean, it's not the shortest it could be, but it's not intractable like Java, right? It's something you could write yourself. And this is actually something that all Lisps have claimed before, and I think it's true. It's the curse of Lisp, actually, right? That instead of having a set of really good libraries like Java has, it was so easy to just roll your own for the one quarter of the problem that you needed to solve. So it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out with Clojure. When you said Java is it, it made me think about more like the early days of Java. It was like, no, Java is it. This is the thing we've been waiting for. And it kind of made me think about, look, we got garbage collection. We don't have to manually point this stuff. We got this other stuff. And it's like, and as you kind of, this is what I love about your Clojure Gazette is with your links, you're like, look, because you do it for Clojure, but like the Java when it's Java, is it? You didn't hear about, no, garbage collection has been around for years, not just years, but decades. And we're just now getting the ability to appreciate it. You kind of in your gazette, because I've seen you go from Alan Kay to Haskell to all these other things, and essentially tying in that history of, look, yes, Clojure is special, but here's these other things that we may be able to get inspiration from. And Sure. Because, as you said, the curse of Clojure is so small, we could take that and actually put it into Clojure because it's reasonable to do from this other language. Right. I don't think you should discount an actual useful implementation of something, right? Like a research paper is just a research paper. And what I, I mean, I totally agree with what you're saying. It's very good to see, oh, this was something that Lisp has had for years, you know, but it's so easy to fall into the smug Lisp weenie problem. And I've done it before myself where you're looking at Java and you're like, why are they celebrating getting lambdas? Why don't they just use closure? We've had lambdas since day one. What's the big deal? And it's, I think that you should rotate that attitude and be more like, instead of saying, why are you so happy? (laughs) I mean, I kind of feel like this sometimes. Like, why are you so happy for getting automatic reference counting on your iPhone? You should have had that, (laughs) you know, 10 years ago. I know that doesn't make sense, but that's the kind of attitude that I get sometimes. And it's really... I don't know. I think it's a harmful attitude. should rotate it and start thinking like, what are the things that I'm missing now that other people are being smug about? 
because there are lots of good ideas out there in other programming languages, other research papers. We have this platform now. Closure is a really great platform for abstraction, and we should be finding those abstractions and building them in. So there's my little motivational pep talk. Well, and that's kind of, you kind of answered the question of why is everybody celebrating in Java that they got lambdas is because they've got lambdas. For the longest time, they didn't, and they're doing the, what have we been missing from these other languages? Sure, right. And there's also something to say of the stability of Java. The bytecode hasn't changed, right? They've added a couple of bytecodes in like 15 years, right? The other thing is Guy Steele. You know, Guy Steele wrote the Java spec. He's one of the writers. And he also invented Scheme. So when he did that, people were horrified. They were like, why did you do this to us? You kind of set the industry back so many years. You should have just given them Scheme and been done with it. And he said, wait, I brought all the C and C++ programmers halfway to Lisp. Like, shouldn't you be happy? Shouldn't you be rejoicing that now they have garbage collection? Now they have safer pointers that's not going to core dump on them? It's true that we should celebrate that kind of thing instead of leaving them with just their pointers. But at the same time, we need to, and it's something I really love about Clojure, we need to go out there and tell them what they're missing. Not in a smug way, like, oh, we had that for years. I'm just going to go back to my code. No, we should be telling them. And you see Rich Hickey going around giving talks about immutable data structures. He talks about values. He was, I think it was RailsConf. I'm probably getting the name wrong. RubyConf or RailsConf. He keynoted. And what did he talk about? He didn't talk about closure. He talked about immutable values, the difference between identity and value. We should all be doing that. We should go around and say, hey, Java, your lambdas, they need work, right? They need to be better. I know that they've got a lot of constraints on them, but they don't solve this problem that we've got, this functional programming problem. They're just sugar. Uh, sorry, I didn't mean to like diss on Java, but we should be going around and helping out. We should be writing closure libraries that can be consumed from Java. Hey, this is something in Clojure that is actually pretty nice to write in Clojure, but I don't think you'd ever get to it in Java. So here it is. I think that Clojure is very quickly approaching the point where people are going to be doing things with it that will stun and amaze people from other languages very quickly. A lot of people will say something like, oh man, I'm going to start picking on other languages. So PHP is basically running the web and so many big sites use PHP and so there's kind of this question of, well, do we need anything more? You know, if Wikipedia, one of the biggest sites in the world, can run on PHP and Facebook is PHP and all these huge sites are running PHP, does your programming language choice really matter? And I think that it's up to us to prove that it does. I think it does, but we have to do something that you couldn't do easily in PHP or maybe even ever in PHP. See, that's the other problem is with enough work, you can write the same Turing equivalent program in any language, right? And that's what you see happening with PHP, right? A really good example is when Rails made this big splash, at least on my radar, with this video that DHH released that was like, write a blog in 15 minutes. And it wasn't just a blog, right? Because anybody could write a blog pretty quickly. But what it was, was it had all this interactivity, the forms were made for you, the database was all done for you. It had those like flash messages which to a PHP programmer, he would have to write that all himself. 
every single line of it. And so it would take hours to even get started writing a blog. And what it really indicated was, wow, a small team or one person can make a splash with Rails and get something started and maybe have like a first mover advantage if such a thing exists. And so then that kind of started the whole frameworks thing. PHP people are like, wow, we really need a framework that would let us do that. But so now they've caught up, right? PHP has caught up just through sheer work. Even though if you look at it, Ruby is probably a better language to write that kind of framework in. They hacked it together in PHP. I remember at that point, PHP was very much still form posts. You'd get a form, you'd fill it out, and you'd hit submit. And that's how you got data back to the server. And Ajax was easy in Rails because it set up those endpoints for you, those REST endpoints. And so you could just start scripting in JavaScript and have a fully interactive Ajax app in 15 minutes. And it took a long time for a PHP, a long time, I mean like people hours to like bang on the stuff enough to get all the REST endpoints, to get the JavaScript written. All of that took time. And wow, now a PHP app can actually be that interactive. What we need to do as closure people is, I don't want to call it a killer app because that's such a bad thing, but it's just find those things that you can't do in other language. And we're getting there. We're getting there. I write core async in ClojureScript, and I don't think I could ever write these coordination solutions that I've got with timeouts for multiple things, start four things at the same time, but I need them back in a certain order one of them has a timeout and use this default value if I don't get it in time. All these things are really hard to do in vanilla JavaScript. Although now you can do a kind of core async CSP thing in ECMAScript 6. So maybe that's it. Maybe that was Clojure's contribution. Like I said, I don't think it's about Clojure being better, but it's about driving these ideas back into other languages, sucking in good ideas, and making a big wave with it. Let that idea spread. And again, for anybody who doesn't follow his Closure Gazette, he may sound like he's hitting on some of these languages, but if you actually read his Closure Gazette, Eric talks a lot about the good influences from other languages as well. So, Yeah, sorry to rant. <laughs> for those who are listening that may think it's a rant, he's actually brings along a lot of that turning that view in his Closure Gazette, so it's something definitely to check out because it's that, from my perspective, you do a very good job of turning that sideways and looking at where can we find inspiration across languages. Well, thank you. I do make mistakes. I have had bad experiences in PHP, I just have to say, but I also think that there is something to the idea that it is on a significant number of websites. There's something to that, you know, so we got to learn from that. So I want to circle back around just because your core async videos should be coming out around the time of the podcast. Is there anything else that we didn't talk about there that we should cover just to give people the extra tease of Ooh, a tease. why they should check it out or even yeah. worth checking out even if it's from other languages besides just Clojure and what people might find interesting about the way Clojure approaches things? Yeah, sure. So Go uses CSP and Go is very popular and is gaining in popularity. And I think for good reason, I think it's a well-engineered system. But the thing about CSP and Go that I was kind of shocked to learn, 
And like I said, I'm not knocking on languages, but I was using Core Async and I was like, oh, I wonder if Go has any resources about learning some patterns or blog posts about cool channel patterns and stuff like that. So I started researching it and it turns out that the hardest part of CSP and Go is that you have to manually stop them. Otherwise, they will never get garbage collected. And we don't have that problem in Core Async. I mean, unless you do an infinite loop in a Go block, I mean, that's certainly possible. They will never get garbage collected. But Core Async is cool because it uses a lot of just purely syntactic compile time transformations. So it's got a Go macro, it's a macro that transforms your code into a bunch of callbacks, basically. And those callbacks are just objects, they're just functions. And so those callbacks, if the thing that they're attached to gets garbage collected, the callback will be garbage collected too. And so it just disappears. So you get a higher level of abstraction. You get garbage collected Go blocks, which it makes it feel very nice to work with. It feels like a first class abstraction that you can deal with all the time. Only have to think about these cases of infinite loops and things like that. And like I said before, I think it's transformed my ClojureScript code. Now, I don't go into ClojureScript in the videos. The reason is getting set up with ClojureScript would be a video itself. And I didn't want to do that. Luckily, it's the same interface, the same functions and macros in Clojure as in ClojureScript. And so I think for learning, learn it in Clojure. And then if you're using ClojureScript, start using it as soon as possible. It gives you, wow, I have a blog post about it where it's actually a solution to callback hell. If you've ever experienced that. Now, callback hell is often talked about like all the indentation that you have to do because you're like, callback with a callback with a callback with a callback. That's not the real problem with callback hell. The real problem with callback hell is that you don't know now when your callback is going to be called. So you've lost control. You've given up control to the function that you're calling with that callback. And you can't coordinate back again. You need to create a new coordination mechanism to bring all those disparate callbacks back together because they really belong together. And Core Async gives you that. It gives you that locality so you can have a loop that spawns off all these different processes. But when they come back, you can decide what order to process them. And you can say, I'm not ready for that one yet. I'm just going to hold on to that channel and not even going to look at it. And I'm going to start doing a loop over here and processing this and like, oh, now I'm ready for it. So I want it. Is it back yet? Well, I'll just wait for it until it's back. These are things like it makes your code look like straight line, sequential, like it's not asynchronous, like you're not doing callbacks, but you are. And it just opens up a world of possibilities. I hope that's a good enough teaser. Sounds good to me. Hopefully it'll be good enough for everyone else listening to. And I'll make sure to include the link to that blog post in the show notes as well for everybody. Yeah, please do. Is there anything else you want to cover or plug that we haven't mentioned? Anything you think people listening would be interested about? So you know what book I'm reading now, which it's kind of shameful that I haven't read it before. It's called Java Concurrency and Practice. It's written by Brian Getz, who's the chief Java architect, something like that. High level architecture role for Java at Oracle. And a whole bunch of other big names contributed to the book. And he's talking at the Closure Conch coming up. It's also on Rich Hickey's reading list. So that's why it's shameful that I haven't read it before. But Oh man, concurrency in Java is so hard. I really 
I mean, not to knock on languages again, but just a fact. They made a bet back in 94, 95 on sequential processing. And now it's 2014 and we're starting to do more and more multi-core, more and more threads. And it's painful. Like I would not want to have to do concurrent stuff in Java. I would rather spawn up two JVMs and have them talk than to do it. But about the book, it gives you some kind of guidelines for how to keep your code safe in a concurrent situation. And it's by the high-level guys in Java, so it's robust. And luckily, Clojure avoids a lot of these problems. So still good to know about, especially if you're a Java guy. If I was hiring Java people, I would force them to read the book. Like if they came to for an interview and they hadn't read the book, I'd be like, okay, here's a copy. Come back when you're finished reading the book. Um, because it's so important to get this concurrency stuff in from the beginning and to understand all the problems with it. That said, I'd like to ask you a question if I can. Okay. Have you ever used Core Async? No, I have not messed with Core Async yet. Is it intriguing to you in any way? Yeah, it's intriguing to see. It was one of those things I was playing with Clojure until the last job I was at uh-huh. and started learning Erlang. And so uh, shifted my learning more to that because of the job. But it is one of those things that is on my radar to see Yeah, yeah. how Clojure is taking care of. Because it almost sounds more of a reactional style. You can do that. Not quite there, but making a step towards that reactional style of thinking. Right, so it's important that you mention that David Nolan, when he was experimenting with Core Async, he was trying to build some browser components using Core Async to do the coordination between them. Because sometimes that stuff can get really complicated. But he called it, it reverses the control flow problem of callback hell, of giving up control, and gives you a, your own event loop, a local event loop. So it's not a global, it's like, these are the things I care about right now, let me listen on them. And I'll take some action, do some logic, send out some more messages, and then loop. And that's what you want a lot of the time. The logic is really clear and concise in one place, but once you spread it around to all your callbacks, you've smeared it all over your code and you can't read it anymore. And then you also mentioned Erlang. A lot of people have compared Core Async to the actor model, but is slightly different in an interesting way that in Erlang, you can send a message from an actor to any other actor as long as you know the pointer to that actor. I don't remember what they're called, reference. And in Core Async, it's one level abstracted. So it's anonymous now because that channel, you don't know who's listening on the other end. It's not direct process to process. It's, I just have this channel. I just put this stuff in there. And then someone might or might not read it on the other end which in my experience, it gives you some interesting possibilities like passing channels down channels and treating the return channel that comes back like a return value. It's got some interesting properties. Yeah, but definitely interested in seeing more about how the closure async stuff works. So Uh we'll be looking forward to the videos when they come out. Yeah, cool. So where can people listening find you and those videos if they want to check out more? Sure. So my blog is lispcast.com. That's kind of my, my hub. It's where I got everything. You can find all the links to everything else on there. Closuregazette.com. Sign up. It's free and you can easily unsubscribe if you don't like it. 
and all the old issues are available archived away. Purelyfunctional.tv is where I sell my videos. And I'm Eric Normand on Twitter. I think that covers about everything. We'll make sure to get all those in the show notes then. Cool. Thank you. I would like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, I would like to thank Eric for giving us time to join me today. It was a pleasure talking with you. Yeah, you too. I had a lot of fun. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.